King Jesus, we come before you to give thanks to you. You paid it all. You paid the debt we owed. And then you didn't just wipe it out to zero. You washed us white as snow. You made us new so that we could walk with you in the fullness of life. That we could have hope and a future. That we could spend our eternity, not even just right now, but forever with you. We hold fast to your promises. And we pray as we open your word this morning, your spirit would be among us, working to convict, empower, and encourage us in the life of Christ. So that we can be for you as you have been for us. And we pray this in the strong and faithful name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Campus House. My name is Rick. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to tell you a short story about a couple of my friends. Uh, over the last year, I've had some challenging phone conversations with some of my best friends. They live in upstate New York near the Adirondack Mountains. And about a year ago, a year ago last Sunday, uh, they had their third child, a little baby boy. And uh, his name is Bo. He was uh, alive for only a month. And then he passed away. And these are people who deeply love children. And it was incredibly grievous to them. They're good parents, and they lost their third child. And they've been deeply sad for quite a while. Then over the summer, they were pregnant again, and they uh, conceived twins. But a couple months later, they had a miscarriage, and they lost both twins. So in one year, uh, some of my best friends lost three children. And it's been deeply, deeply sad to them. And sometimes we'd be on the phone and we'd just cry together. And sometimes we'd pray together. And sometimes the airwaves were just silent because it's hard to know, what do you say to your friends who are struggling? But I know they have the same kind of questions that most of us have, whether it's as deep a loss as three children, or whether it's just the daily frustrations, or one of those weeks Sometimes we start to ask, right, why? why? Why God? Or why me? Or why now? Or why this? Over the summer, as I thought about my friends and as I prayed for them and as I talked with them on the phone, I started rereading the book of Job. It's an Old Testament book. And if you've ever met a Christian or who's suffered, you've probably heard them mention the book of Job at some point. Because it's one of the main places people will go to look at and see, what does God have to say to suffering? You know, both Christians and non-Christians have recognized Job as a literary masterpiece. It actually even shows up on certain tests you might take to get into grad school or certain grad schools, especially around English or English literature. It's considered a masterpiece. But beyond that, for us, if you're a believer and you're a Christian, the book of Job is not just beautiful literature. But I would say from what I've read, there's no other religion or philosophy uh, no other book in the world that addresses the suffering of the world 
with such intellectual and philosophical nuance and honesty, and at the same time, with great emotional reality and spiritual wisdom. Job is written not from an armchair where we're just philosophizing about evil or about suffering or about pain or sorrow. It's written from the wheelchair. This is a real man's life. And so it's not just an intellectual endeavor, but this very emotional, spiritual thing to see that God has something to say and something to do within our sorrows and our disappointments or our rejections or our pains or our fears. Now, someone asked me a couple weeks ago, what are you going to be preaching on? And I said, Job. And they were somewhat joking, but they said, are you trying to make everyone sad? I said, well, no, because Job isn't making people sad. Job is acknowledging the sadness that can already be there. Job is a book that says God knows and God cares that we suffer or have sorrow or have disappointment in our life. And he may not have an answer that we expect, but he does have something for us within that, and it's pretty amazing. It's pretty astounding to see what God does through this book. And another note, so here's a quick introduction to Job. We're going to do this for seven weeks. We're going to look at the story of Job. Uh, But before we really get into the story of suffering, we're going to get into the introduction, which is just the first five chapters of the book, or the first, sorry, five verses. We're not going to do five chapters today, in case that scared you. You were wondering if suffering was coming right now. Uh, No, we are are doing the first five verses today. And the way that the book is set up, it's an epic poem. I mean, it's really a lot of poetry within it, but it's very beautifully written. But it's based around three conversations after the introduction. There's a conversation between God and Satan. There's a short conversation between them. Then there's some very long conversations between Job and his friends who are trying to help him or comfort him, and they end up not really doing any of that as he's suffering. But they have these long conversations about what is suffering? What do we do with it? How does God relate to us in this? And then the final conversation is a dialogue between God and Job. So that's the basic structure of the book, and it helps us see where is this going? Because you might look at this and go, wow, there's 42 chapters? Yes, that means that God, when he brings up suffering, God, when he looks at sorrow, he's not going to fix it or he's not going to give us an answer that can be a a 140-character tweet. If you're going to look at suffering with God, you have to actually go and say, wow, 42 chapters. And most of it, God isn't speaking, but it's people speaking, people reasoning through, trying to figure out how do we handle suffering? And the answer they get to is that, well, we don't have all the answers. And then God shows up and brings something especially profound towards the end. But we're going to look at Job, and we're going to do this not just because I became interested or in going and revisiting that over the summer with my friends, but as I reread Job, it struck me that um, whether you're suffering right now, whether you're in pain or sorrow or there's something disappointing in your life, or whether you've become aware of some past things in your life that you realize are sticking to you and you don't know how to shake them, Or you wonder, will I suffer in the future? Will I struggle? Will there ever be pain? How will I handle that? We're asking and looking at the book of Job because we think, as we look at the Bible, as we look at the Christian life, we want to be the kind of people whose faith endures for a lifetime. That's the call on us from God, is that He can empower and gives us our faith, but then it's forever. It's for our entire lifetime, which means... Can it face, can it handle the sorrows and disappointments of life? See, we might most likely ask in suffering, why? But the book of Job 
also starts asking us questions. And the questions for us are, are we becoming the kind of men and the kind of women who can take sorrow and disappointments into our hearts and not be crushed by it? Are we the kind of people who are growing that when we see evil and injustice or when we face grief and disappointment, that our faith can actually still grow? Our faith can be planted and firm. Our life and our hearts will not be corrupted or destroyed, but in fact, we will endure See, the book of James mentions Job. This is in the New Testament. And James is talking to people who were suffering, and he says, establish your hearts. What does he mean? Like, what are you going to establish it on? Well, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, consider the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we Christians count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Have you ever seen suffering and you've thought, or pain, or your friends are struggling, and you're like, there's just no reason for this. But one of the things the book of Job brings up to us is that just because we can't find the reason doesn't mean there isn't one, and that maybe there's a God who, in his greater reasonableness than us, his greater mental and spiritual and personal capacities. He has reasons beyond what we can see because we aren't him. And one of the good news about this, some of the good news about this, as James says, is you want to know one of the purposes? One of the purposes of the Lord in looking at Job's and Job's suffering and perseverance, he wants to show compassion and mercy. That might seem counterintuitive. How, how can we look and see God's compassion and mercy through suffering? But this gets us asking these questions and shows us maybe the world doesn't run exactly how we thought it did. And we're going to listen to God along the way so that he can show us and we can lean more fully by faith into the way that he says the world runs. And so Job is not just talking about suffering in general, but it's talking about suffering in particular, particularly someone who follows God. And that's what we see in this little introduction, the first five verses. We get to meet Job, and we get to see what kind of person is he. And we'll find that though Christianity wasn't around yet for Job, he's pointing to Christ. And so we're going to call this uh, the Christian life. What we see in Job is before anything bad happens that we know of, he is living the Christian life. So let's read Job 1, verses 1 to 5. If you want to turn there, I encourage you to do that as we go through Job together. Uh, it'll also be on the screen. If you're turning in your Bibles uh, and you have a physical Bible in front of you and you're wondering, Job, it's up on the screen. It says, it looks like the word job. This is not the place in the Bible where God tells you how to make a resume or how you can get better at interviewing. This is actually a story about this guy named Job. Uh, and it's right before the book of Psalms. So if you're new to the Bible, turn to about the middle of the Bible and then go left a little bit. You'll find Job. Here's Job 1, verses 1 to 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of them on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. 
he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of each of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This Job did continually. Here's the big idea that we're getting in the introduction to the book of Job. Job is a great man. He has great character, and he has a very good life. He's wealthy and prosperous and has an ideal family. He's personally close to God, and he's true to his faith in all things. So he lives, essentially then, he lives under the approval of God. Have you ever wondered if you have God's approval? Part of what we're going to look at this morning is to see that here's somebody who does. Let's look at his life and see what it is to live under God's approval. Because this is the foundation for everything. And the reason why the book begins this way is because it's going to introduce us to some tough questions that pertain to this. If this man is so great in his character and so good in his conditions in life, he's got a great family, a great life, a great bank account, a great job, as we might expect, a good person who has good things. What's going to happen when he suffers? Is it going to reveal that his character wasn't so great after all? Because when your conditions change, does your character also? This is the point of the introduction. It leads us to see this great scenario and this great person. But as we go into the next coming weeks, we're going to have to face the question, what's going to happen to Job when he faces great difficulty? So what does life lived under the approval of God look like? We're going to look at three things the character of a Christian, the condition of a Christian, and the habit of a Christian. This is what we're going to look at. So verse 1, we're going to spend some time here because this is actually says a whole lot in this one tiny verse, and it really does set up the entire rest of the book. There's a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless. There's four things related to character. Blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So what this is talking about is that Job is a model man. He's a good guy, a great guy. Here's his description, the blameless, upright, feared God, turned away from evil. We're, we're talking about his personal integrity, his treatment of other people, his primary desire, and his sincere morality. These are all things that he cares about. We're going to look at each of them briefly so we can get a picture of the character of the Christian life. Blameless. Now you might think, Job's blameless. Does that mean he's innocent? Like you're saying he's never sinned? He's never done anything wrong? Well, the word can mean innocent, yes, but it also has a fuller meaning. It means complete. Sometimes it's even translated perfect. You're like, well, isn't that even worse? You're saying that Job is perfect? He's never done anything wrong? Well, Job himself would disagree with that. In chapter 7, 9, 13, and 14, he mentions his own sin. So he's not saying that he's sinless. In fact, he says in chapter 13, Lord, if you remembered the sin of my youth, like his teenage and college years, he'd say, you would kill me. If you remembered what I did then, I would be done. So he knows it. He's, he's, not say, he's agreeing with the whole Bible, which says things like, for all people have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Or like in Ecclesiastes, it says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So you can do good and you can sin. And actually the complexity of life is that we do both. Job is this kind of person. So what does blameless mean? It doesn't mean that he's completely innocent. It means, in the terms of completion or perfection, it means that he's completely committed. 
He's completely committed to God and completely committed to God's ways so that in everything that he does, uh, whether it's dealing with the land that God made or dealing with the people in his life or dealing with his own private uh, prayers to God, he is complete in that he seeks to live for God in all things. That's what blameless means. It might be like this, uh, like a surgeon. You might say, well, you can't blame the surgeon. He really did all he could. He did all he completely could. Does that mean the surgeon has never made a mistake? No, it means he did everything he possibly, he completely did what he could in that scenario to save their life. Same idea here. Job completely cares about the life of God, and he completely lives that way. What we're talking about is integrity, a wholeness of person. Everything in his life is integrity, integrated into his commitment to God. So he doesn't care about doing some things right, but doesn't care at all about doing those things right. He doesn't love God just at Christmas and Easter time, but he's like a full Christian. He's a full believer. He, he shows up all the time, not just because showing up to church is good, but because he actually wants to worship God. Really, this is the kind of thing that our neighbors expect of us. If you're a believer, you know, sometimes you hear about this, uh, the hypocrisy of Christians and how people are frustrated by Christians. You know, some of that's really a caricature and unfair. But as a believer myself, I'd say, you're right. Plenty of times the criticism is fair because I'm not completely perfect and innocent. But I do want to be completely committed to God, and I want to grow in that way. In fact, when someone says that I'm a hypocrite, I'd have to say, you're right. That's exactly why I am a Christian. I'm a Christian because I know I don't get everything right. I need Jesus because I didn't do it all perfectly. I'm not a Christian because I'm better than you. I'm a Christian because I'm not. This is the kind of person Job is. He sees and knows his flaws, but he's completely committed. He's blameless in his effort to live and walk with God. This is, of course, really hard to do, right? Um, and so it's not easy to be a Christian. It's not easy necessarily because it can be easy to feel like I can go to church and be devout there, but I could be dishonest in my business. Um, I could seek God's forgiveness, but then not forgive somebody in my family for a long period of time. I could profess love for God in church, but I could express little love to my neighbors, whom God says he also loves. Right? It's very challenging to live a blameless life. But we're talking about a genuine, authentic uh, reality in the heart that begins to flow outward into all things. Sometimes the old Jewish rabbis would say, it's uh, you're, you're without looks like you're within. So what is inside of you matches what's outside of you. So you're not a hypocrite. You don't do one thing and say another, or say one thing and then do another. That's the kind of person that Job is. He has this character trait of blamelessness, of integrity. And the reason why we're spending time on this is that it's pivotal to the entire book of Job. We have to remember the introduction because throughout the book of Job, a bunch of people are going to start questioning whether Job is really that great of a guy. Because their idea of suffering is that if you're suffering, God must be mad at you. And therefore, you sinned even if you're saying that you didn't. So it turns out maybe Job has a secret sin that he didn't tell anybody about. He says and looks one thing, but he's actually not so great. Well, the book of Job is confirming for us at the very beginning. No, he really is. He really is a genuinely committed believer. Not that he's never made any mistakes, but he really does walk with God. And if you want to know for sure, then you should look at verse 8. And then you look in chapter 2, verse 6, or verse 3, rather, and you'll see that God himself says the exact same things we see here about Job. 
How great is that? Don't you want God to be able to say his approval? (laughs) So God himself declares this is true of Job. But the temptation is to become cynical about this, that he couldn't really live a life for God on this earth. The second thing, then, is his treatment of others. See, if, if Job is blameless, this is his integrity. His integrity flows out, and then he's upright, it says, which is really a word about how do we interact with other people. So he uh, is upright, which means he's not crooked in his dealings. He'll shoot you straight. He's going to tell, tell you like it is. He's not going to, again, say one thing and do another. He's not going to tell you. He's not a people pleaser. He's not just going to tell you what you want to hear. He's going to tell you exactly what you need to hear. But because he's a good guy, he's not going to do it in a way that tries to destroy you or he's happy about tearing you down. No, this is the kind of person you want to have in your life because he's upright in his heart, which means that he's upright in his words. What he says is what he means. He's not going to get caught up in the gossip of the town or of the campus, right? He, ha- he is someone who always has his eye towards doing what's right in this scenario. What's right for this group of people and these persons? In Job 29, we actually see that uh, Job is someone who was well-respected in the entire town that he lived in. Everyone looked up to him. But he also cared because he cared for the poor and he cared for the sick. So here's someone who's super wealthy, but he's upright. He actually cares about all the rightness around him, not just him having a right kind of life in his own eyes. But he cares about all those around him. This is the kind of person he is. He's sincere in all that he does. You know, I went to uh, Oregon over the summer. One of my dreams for a long time has been to buy a convertible on the West Coast and drive all the way across the U.S. And I was trying to see if I could do that this summer. I was visiting Portland, Oregon, and I thought, well, maybe I'll see if I can work this out. I went to a car dealer. I'd done some research online. And I drove this car around there, and then I realized, you know, it's a... It's not quite what they said it was, and I don't think I should do this right now. So I was going to walk away, but then they gave me a really hard time about it. Well, I I left, and uh, a couple days later, there was a $500 charge on my credit card bill. They charged me $500 to test drive the car, which is usually free. Uh, So I called, and they fought against me, and then I had to go through the credit card company. This is is the one of those. They actually explicitly told me, we don't do that. And then they went and did it, right? This is the exact opposite. This is what you see. And so Job, for example, would never do that kind of thing in his business. He would be a trustworthy mechanic. He's the kind of person you want to take your car to or you want to buy something from. But even more, he's the kind of person who would do this everywhere, not just in his business so he could even make more money. But he'd do it in his family or in his friendships. So maybe you're one of these people or maybe you have a friend like this. Maybe you've said or one of your friends has recently told you something hard that you didn't really want to hear. But maybe today is the day to go thank them for being the kind of friend who would actually tell you what you needed to hear because they loved you. I know that can be really challenging, but the the great thing about this is upright people make more upright people. It gets produced and replicated. So when Job is doing good around his town because he actually cares for those people, those become people who also know what it means to care. This is the kind of person Job is. And what, what is his motivation? The third thing is this. It says that he fears God. This means being, again, a completely devoted follower of God. You might think, fear? Does that mean that Job is just terrified of God? He lives in terror. I better do good because otherwise God's going to crush me. No, that's not what this word means. All throughout the Old Testament, all these words occur. And they describe someone who's in a right relationship with God. And fearing God doesn't mean terror of God. It means awe and reverence and respect for God. 
And so Job uh, is one of these kinds of people. He sets the will of God before him in all things. That means that when he thinks about his life, he fears God first. He doesn't fear other people and what they think. He doesn't fear his own mistakes. He doesn't fear having to get, um, figure everything out on his own. He isn't afraid of that because what he does is he turns to God. He trusts that God holds his life, that God is worthy of his awe and his respect and his reverence, and that God can lead him. He knows that God's will is good, and the glory of God is his goal, and the approval of God is his safety. He knows what it means to live a life approved by God. So, Jesus actually calls Christians, all of us, to the same thing later on. He just says it in a different way. He says things like, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Same ideas as fearing God. Putting God first in everything. That's what it means. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all other things will be added to you, Jesus said. First order of importance. First um, priority in our hearts. First priority in the way we do things. God and his glory, his kingdom and his righteousness. And his kingdom is the condition God gives us, and his righteousness is the character he puts upon us. Job cares about living these things. And Jesus calls us to the same stuff. And finally, someone who fears God and is blameless and upright, who has personal integrity, who treats others well, who looks to God first, is also going to have a pretty rock-solid morality. So he has a sincere morality, and here's how we know this. Job doesn't just try to do good out there and, like, and be a good person. He also turns away from evil, it says. So Job turns away from evil. You know, the word turned away is the same word we use in other places for the word repent. So the word repent, and often I think sometimes we do a disservice today. We, uh, we don't talk about this word repent very often, even though when Jesus comes, the first words out of his mouth when he starts his ministry are repent and have faith, for the kingdom of God is here. The very first word Jesus speaks to start his ministry is this word, repent. And it means to physically or literally turn away from something, and also spiritually to turn away from things that are harmful, that are evil, that are wrong, that are bad. And you might feel that, well, we talk about this sometimes, you know, if you do something wrong, you should probably repent. But the idea here is that repentance is a lifestyle, It's not just, oops, I did something bad. Let me say a few words to God. Oh, that's good. That's called confession, and that's important. But you know that when it says he turned away from evil, that means you can repent before you do wrong things. You turn away before because you see, you know God and his will so much so that you can see where evil is and where you might get caught up in it, and you turn from it. Before you do it, repentance is an all-the-time thing. It's the life of a Christian. This is our character. We are always turning away from what is destructive, and we turn always towards and back to God. So repentance isn't just for when we did something wrong. It's an all-the-time thing. We're always keeping God first. We're putting him in front of us. And so you can do it before you do anything wrong at all. You know, so this is what we'd say, for example, if you have struggled with pornography, and uh, you know what it's like to look and then to feel ashamed and to, to have struggles with that. And then you say, okay, I've got to confess. I've got to repent to God. I know that wasn't the way that he designed me to live. 
But then maybe you take another step in your character and your growth and you say, I don't want to do that again, so I'm going to give my phone to a friend and I'm going to have them put in a, a code that helps me block those things. And I don't know what the code is. I'm turning away from evil before it happens. That way I can't even access it. I can still use my phone, for example, right? But I, I actually have somebody helping to guard me from turning before I have to feel and go through the shameful experience of looking at sexuality as an exhibition rather than as an intimate commitment between married, uh, married spouses. That's turning away from evil before you do the evil, right? And it helps you and prevents you from going there. So this is the kind of person that Job is in all of his life. He's seeking to be completely committed to God. In one sense, we're just saying Job is a genuine believer. He's a true disciple and a real follower of God who is not selfish or self-centered. But even in his great wealth, power, and privilege, he is someone who looks with an eye to the poor and who cares about the rest of the people around him. And this is his condition, though. We've seen it in verse 2 and 3. It describes his family. Uh, seven is a, and 7 and 3 are especially for Jewish people and for Israelites or people like Job back in the day. These are considered favorable numbers. They really liked certain numbers. They represented wholeness or completeness. So Job's 10 children is kind of this ideal family. And then it even says they have parties together. So they actually enjoy being together. They enjoy one another. So he's a great family. It says that he has many people on his payroll, and he has a ton of cattle and sheep. This is the way you'd measure wealth back then. So not by how much he had in his bank account, but how much he had roaming in his fields. He's wealthy. It actually says, right, he is the greatest of all the people in the East. So Job is a powerful and uh, important person in his world. And here's what we see. Before we see any suffering, right, Job is this great man with great character, and he has a good life. And you know that that's just actually the ordinary way that God works? Sometimes we hear, if you've ever heard of the prosperity gospel, I think the prosperity gospel is very wrong. But you know why it's so compelling? is because it gets certain things right. And what it gets right is it will say that God wants us to be healthy or wealthy and blessed in a way, right? And that's actually true. God didn't design the world to be the way that it is now. One of my friends or one of the students uh, around campus said she started watching the news more recently because she wants to be more informed. And then she's like, but I also now really believe in that thing called original sin. (laughs) I'm watching what's happening in the world, and I think, gosh, people are evil. The news is depressing, said, yeah, that's why people stop watching again, because it's kind of sad sometimes. Job's condition, though, is just, it's wealthy. He's got power. And yet, let's look at Psalm 128, verse 1 and 2. Just another passage. There's a lot of these verses. This is one example. It says this, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Remember, Job feared the Lord. Who walks in his ways. That's the same ideas as blameless and upright. When you eat of the labor of your hands, when you do your work, you will be happy because it will be well with you. You do your work, you bring in some good stuff, you have a nice life, it's great. This is actually the way God designed things to be. There's a general principle that is, if you're an upright and moral person, in general, things will go better for you. When you're not, you might end up in jail, right? So that's worse in general for most of us. We don't want to be in jail. So in general, a general principle is you live a good life. You probably actually have a good life. That's the way God designed things. It's an ordinary life. You live a life of integrity. You might just happen to have a good good, uh, family, good life. 
But here's the thing about it, and this is where the place where we struggle and where the prosperity gospel goes very wrong. You might say, ah, yes, see, God does want me to be happy, healthy, and prosperous. Yes, he does, but the Bible always puts this within the context of, yes, to the glory of God. Yes, in the service of God. So here's the thing. I'm actually fairly convinced that there were plenty of points in my life where I was asking God for certain things that I wanted because I thought they would make my life great. And at this point, I'm extremely glad that he didn't give them to me. Because God, knowing what God knows, which is more than what I know, he knew that if he gave those things to me, those things might destroy me. Because I didn't have the character to handle them. And this is what happens for us. You might think, okay, cool, we talked about character, but I'm kind of more interested in Job and how he got successful. We flip the priority of things. But the thing is, Job is only a great man because he has the character to handle his success. And he has the ability to do it in light of what God has designed. The Bible warns us all the time. It says wealth is great and prosperity is good and success is fine. But it also says these things can destroy you. And you're like, well, which is it? Well, it's both depending on what kind of person you are. Remember what Jesus said? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, saying the same idea, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in because God owns everything. But you aim at just getting stuff on earth and you get neither. Because if at the end of your life, you know, you've never had a relationship with God or you never cared about his things, you're not going to end up with God in the long run because you just cared about what was here, what was here and now. This matters because uh, we want to get the order of things right. And what Job's story shows us is character is really important, and it helps you handle whatever your condition is, because that's one of the questions that's going to come up. Eventually, we're going to see Job loses everything, everything. He experiences one of the worst personal tragedies of any story you might read. And the question is, is he still going to be a great man, even though he no longer appears to have a good life? What kind of people are we becoming? But Job has a habit. We're calling this the habit of a Christian. And he has a habit that helps him stay the course in all of these things. Let's read verse 4 and 5 again. To remind you, he has these festivals with his kids. It says, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. On his day might be like his birthday, right? So he's got 10 kids. On their birthday, they have a feast or a festival. It actually lasts for several days. They enjoy each other's company. And then afterwards, in verse 5, it says, when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send for his children and consecrate them. It's the same idea as sanctify or make them holy. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt, burnt offerings according to each one of them. So for each one of his ten kids, he would offer a burnt offering. Now, the Old Testament describes this very often. And in the law, a burnt offering is actually the most expensive offering you can offer to God. And it's taking an animal like a sheep or a lamb, and uh, it offers it up to God. And what Job would do is say to one of his children, let's say, you know, the very Hebrew name, Molly, that's not a Hebrew name. Uh, <laughs> Molly, this sheep is for you. And he would, they would kill the sheep. They would put it on the altar. Then they would light the altar on fire. And it would burn up and it would be an offering to God. And what everyone knew was that when you were watching this animal die, it w- or they were already dead, but as they were watching it burn um, and, and be consumed, the, the imagery was to say, 
this should be me. Because the people recognized the great evil that was in the world, and they recognized that, like Job, blamelessness didn't mean I'm not a part of it sometimes. And sin causes death, ultimately. All throughout the story of Scripture, sin causes death. And so you would look at this and say, that should be me, but it's not. Something has taken my place. And we're talking Job, even though he's really wealthy, if he's doing this 10 times a year, you know, if every one of their birthday parties, at least that and maybe more, ended in some time of giving an offering for each of his children, that's 10 times 10 or more. So we're talking at least 100 or more animals per year just for his children. Because what does Job say? He has this deep, sincere um, conscience in his own heart, which isn't surprising given his character. And he says, it might be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So what he says is, my children look great on the outside, but what if they don't have that developed character? What if on the inside, and the word cursed is actually a little strong there. It's hard to translate this because it's a, a euphemism in Hebrew. But it has to do with greetings. And so it would say something like, they have said goodbye to God in their hearts. Or they have said goodbye for the moment to God in their hearts. You know those times in your life? Right? Where you're like going through your day and you just end up doing something you want. And then later you realize, man, that wasn't right. That wasn't good. I didn't even think of God during that. I say I follow God. And, and you realize I've waved goodbye to God in my heart. At least even for a moment. But sometimes for days or weeks or if you don't know God at all, it's, that's just where we are. We, don't, we haven't welcomed him. And Job is worried about that with his kids. And so... This is really important. Now, I think of this, my mom, there was a time where if you look at the first half of my life in college, my first two years, and then you look at the second half of my time in college, uh, they look kind of different. The first one, people would have said I was a good person, but you certainly couldn't have described me as having the character described of Job, not the character of a, a strong Christian. But the second half, God did some incredible work in my life, and it started with this realization that things like uh, it didn't start with this exact passage, but it started with this idea that, and realization that God actually could approve of me because I was always working hard to get people to approve of me. But here we see that the only way to get approval from God is to offer yourself, essentially even a, something, something in place of you, your life, and offer it to God and trust that he is going to atone. He is going to forgive that he is going to say, I've seen all that you did, the iniquities of your youth, the things you did before, and I have made a way. And we have to simply trust. I mean, to put something on the sacrificial altar is to trust God. And then I realized as we, you read through Scripture, Jesus in Hebrews is said to be the burnt offering. That's why we're not going out on campus offering lambs every day for everyone in here. Because Jesus is the lamb, and he's the final sacrifice because he actually was blameless in every way, including innocence. And he was upright and that he treated everyone well and right as God intended. And he feared God more than anyone and that he said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And then he turned away from evil by taking evil upon himself and dying on the cross so that he became associated with the thing that we struggle to turn away against. He is the ultimate in the burnt offering, uh, the ultimate burnt offering in a way. And so my mom came to me actually second half of college and said, you know, I actually didn't know whether you cared about God or whether you even loved people. But now I know. Now I see it. Your character is starting to match what you say you believe. And this is what happens for the habit of a Christian is this. And there's two sides to this for us, right? Some of us, 
We have heard this story before. We know the cross, Jesus died, and so that means that God has welcomed and accepted me. Yes, God approved of me. But for too many of us, it's really just remained an idea. And you know it's an idea because you leave this room and nothing about your life has changed and nobody else out there could say, gosh, you're different. What is it about you? And you could say, that thing, that's God's life in me. And so some of us, we can try to be good people, but we're doing it in our own effort. We're doing it under our own power. We're not really living, living under the approval of God, even though we may have heard about that before. Because these things always go together. God's approval and my action and speech and behavior and thinking in the world. But then there's others of us who we've heard about this too, but we mostly look at our own lives. And Every day we just see all the ways we fall short and we're pretty convinced God couldn't really approve of us or love us. We're, we see that and we have to take far more looks at Christ. Right? So some of us need to take a good hard look at our life and say, does it really match what I say about God who loves and approves of me? But others of us need to stop taking a look at our life for a moment and take a look at the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and to see that he actually approved of you in those things. Stop seeing only your mistakes and instead see one who knew those mistakes and yet approved of you anyway by taking them on himself. Friends, this is the life of a Christian and Job exemplifies that for us. So as we go forward, we see that you know, we are asking this question, are we the kind of people who are worthy of representing God on this campus? You know, I love the beginning of this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And he had this great character. He lived in the right conditions with God, which was he put God first, not his wealth or his status or his success or his career. And then he had this habit of constantly turning back and saying, God, I have to trust you with my life. I have to trust you with my children's life. Will you forgive and cleanse us? Will you see us and approve of us? This is his habit. What if it was there were a bunch of students in the land of Purdue who had this character and lived under these conditions and walked with this God and lived under his approval? Can you imagine? Let's pray that he will make it so. Lord, we pray that uh, you would do this in us that those of us who are already yours, let us cling again to the approval you have given to us. But let us also walk this out day by day. We want to be like you because you are the greatest thing we could ever have. You've promised us a hope and a future so that whether this life we never achieve all the dreams or hopes or things we desired, you've said that we will have all those things and more in the kingdom to come. But we don't look just for the gift. We look at you, the one who gave them. And we thank you, Lord, that you have in Christ the truest of character, the best condition which you willingly left the kingdom of heaven and came to bring the kingdom to us, even though things were evil here. And so we pray, Lord, help us again and again to take up this habit. Thus Job did continually. He continually walked this out and came back to the sacrifice that was given for him. And so we come back to you, Jesus, as we enter communion. Meet us here, that in communion we would see the sacrifice you made for us and the life that you've given, and you have called us and given us the stamp of approval. So we praise you and we thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.
So we're going to pass out communion. And as Job and his family would regularly gather and have a feast to celebrate life together and the good things God gives, they would also uh, do these sacrifices. And as they get ready to pass out communion, uh, let's let this be the thing that shapes our own reflection today. We're gathered here. If you're the family of God, then you're like Job's family. We've gathered for a small feast, which we call communion. And in communion, what we remember is the sacrifice. This is Jesus' body broken for you. This is his blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Communion is our burnt offering. And this is what we do to remember him. So if you don't know him, don't take communion. Take Christ himself. Cry out and say, Lord, your way is the way. I want to be on that way. And he will say, well, now you're on it because you've put first things first. But if you already have made that your cry, cry it again and then take communion and remember and believe again. Repent and believe, right? As Jesus said, keep turning back to God and keep walking by faith in him that he really does approve of you.